Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Transcending Together with Julianne and Lee. Good afternoon, beautiful and amazing human beings. I hope you are all having a good day. It's a hello from me. And it's a hello from Lee. Nice to see you all. Well, you can see us. We can't see you. <laughs> and I hope you're all listening. <laughs> We've got quite a, a contentious lineup to discuss today, which hopefully you will find interesting. And some of it is trans-related. Some of it is just general dialogue on the absolute abysmal state of affairs of the country. <laughs> So shall we start with that? I know, Lee, you had something that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, so um, last week, our unelected prime minister went on um, a visit to Kiev and has now pledged 2.5 billion in military aid to Ukraine for this next financial year. And I think that was an increase of like 200 million. And I'm just like, why Why is my tax money being spent on, on war? Surely that $2.5 would come in very handy to those people on, you know, poverty line and with the cost of everything going up and all sorts of things. And it's like, shouldn't surely I should have the option to say I'm not paying taxes to support war, you know? <laughs> I wonder what you think. Yeah, it's an interesting point, though. There, there is a counter-argument which says that it's not actual cash that they give. It's money they make available for them to purchase weapons from British aerospace companies <laughs> like BAE Systems and things like that. So I guess you could argue that it gets spent in the UK, but I suppose not all of it. And it's also, I think the point being, why not give $2.5 to the NHS? Because they're definitely going to spend it in the country as well, aren't they? And they always just, exactly. it just always seems to be enough money for war and never enough for anything else. And I think that's the thing which just really, I, I find quite exhausting. There's always money to be made in, in wars, isn't there? And that's probably why we have so many of them, because it is a big money-making racket. And I agree with you, you know, $2.5 to the NHS. Maybe it'll stop, you know, the nurses and the doctors and everyone else striking because their take-home pay in real terms has decreased dramatically over the years. And I just think that money should be better spent at home. Yeah, definitely. And there's also the idea that if you give a poor person £10, he'll spend £10. If you give a rich person £10, he'll ferret it away to the Cayman Islands. <laughs> you know, this is one of the things which people always forget to talk about when it comes to the, uh, the, the benefit system is that 100% of that money is spent in the country. So every £10 that goes to somebody on benefits ends up going to a local supermarket or a supermarket. So I think to that extent, this idea of forking over billions of pounds to companies, because I guess as well, I mean, counter-counter-argument to the fact that that a lot of that 2.5 billion will get spent with British companies. Those British companies will take the profits associated with that and ship that off. Exactly. Offshore. Yeah, it, it's just, it's inconscionable. And added to which is this idea that all of a sudden now, apparently, we've decided we need to launch an attack on Yemen because of these Houthi 
I'm not sure if it's Houthi or Houthi pirates who have been making nonsense of themselves in the Red Sea, we end up in a situation where the UK and the US is actively bombing a, a group of people that, by any definition, that they are freedom fighters. They're fighting for independence in Yemen, like so many other people uh, all over the world had their lands divided in half by European conquerors who decided, okay, we're just going to stick a, a, a border there. To large extent, that, that is at the heart of the problem in the Ukraine, is when it was part of the USSR, I suppose it was technically all Russia, but at the end of, I think it was World War II, came up with this marvelous idea to just create arbitrary boundaries elsewhere. Or no, it was in the collapse of the USSR. Sorry, I take that back. Yeah, they just decided to include a whole bunch of people who were traditionally Russian inside the borders of Ukraine, which would be fine if they were treated with respect and dignity for their Russian heritage, which they weren't, which they weren't being. And that's usually what what leads to problems like that. And I guess it's the same. We always come back to Northern Ireland, don't we? When we start thinking about things like that. But you've also got just the idea that the, the, the whole excuse for, for those bombing attacks in Yemen were supposed to be because of disruption to the Red Sea trade routes. But there wouldn't be the disruption if the original <laughs> disruption, you know, again, it, it, we're just dealing with the symptom and not not the source of the problem. Yeah, and I mean, again, an unelected prime minister has created a war event in another country. We didn't vote for him and we certainly didn't vote for bombing Yemen. Yeah, that actually, that's such an interesting point. I mean, how on earth do they agree to do stuff like that? I think it would have taken needed a vote in parliament, but I suppose they've got some kind of workaround somewhere that, that means that they can, certain things are entirely within the Ministry of Defence to, to make up their own minds about. So yeah, I, I think it's... Yeah, I mean, it's quite, quite interesting. When we were part of the coalition that invaded Iraq, there was parliamentary process that, that went through that. Why did we bomb another country without that kind of parliamentary scrutiny? Yeah, exactly. But then, even then, there was like a million-man march on 10 Downing Street <laughs> to tell the government that we as a country didn't agree with what they were doing, and they still went yeah. ahead and did it anyway. Yeah, it's how do we get them to listen? I guess that's what it comes down to. I, I think that's where I'm just kind of stuck, you know, because I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how we actually break through and say to them, you know, in my name, you, you can't do this. Can't. I mean, those bombs that they dropped on Yemen were hundreds of thousands of pounds. I mean, that bombing raid all in of itself probably cost more than it would cost to rebuild all the schools that have been built out of this shoddy concrete. Mm. I don't know what the answer is other than getting angry because I don't imagine Tony Blair was Labour and Keir Starmer's not that different from a policy perspective than Tony Blair was. He's refused to come out and decry the the way the Israelis have behaved in Palestine. And yet, yeah, so I don't imagine that, that Keir Starmer would 
behave any differently. He hasn't called out Israel. So why would he suddenly now decide to behave any differently? He was in power, I think we would still be supporting. Anyways, this attack on Yemen is in support of Saudi Arabia because they're the ones who are largely behind the, the war in Yemen. And again, it's because they have a border crossover. It's almost like the, like the Kurds in Turkey, where they split between northern Iraq and southern Turkey. So they, they don't have a distinct homeland. And it's exactly what they did in Israel to the Palestinians, where they split them into the West Bank and Gaza. And I just think that that, that had a lot to do with, with creating a problem like that. I mean, of course, in the case of Israel, they just gave the whole country <laughs> to, to the Israelis. So that kind of seems a little bit different. But yeah, yeah, it's, it's really, it's really awful. And I think until as a society, we decide that this sort of thing is not acceptable and try our best, you know, to make our voices heard. I mean, there was a huge pro-Palestinian rally over the weekend. It was peaceful. They made their point. But then at the same time, so? <laughs> um, if I'm being cynical, I mean, the bloody Tories probably look at it and say, oh, look at all these people coming into London. They're going to be buying lunch. They're going to be buying refreshments. They're going to be traveling on <laughs> TFL. And for the economy. So it's good for the economy. That's probably exactly how they flip and think about it. <laughs> I, I don't know. Really... I just don't know. I don't know what the answer is to that one. I mean, we, I think we do need to advocate for greater transparency and accountability in government spending, particularly in defence budgets. You know, we, we need to encourage public discussions um, and oversight to ensure that our tax pounds are, are wisely and ethically spent. I, I think that would be, that would be a good place to start. Yeah, and that leads nicely into the next segment, actually. <laughs> so we're going to take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, we'll pick up on that again. Did you know we've got an absolutely wonderful merch store? You can buy merch from the show. You can buy this mug, which supports my rugby team, the Sussex Dragons. This is one of my favorites. This is best part of waking up, turf tears in my cup. We also have t-shirts which support my rugby team and t-shirts which express our dissatisfaction with England rugby for the way they've treated trans people. And for you bikers out there, we've got our Sisters on Steel Motorcycle Club. Scan this or follow the links on tigergirl.substack.com. Now back to the show. Welcome back, beautiful and amazing human beings. So we were just saying before the break about making sure that our tax dollar tax pounds are spent responsibly by the government and advocating for greater oversight and and yet you read about the tens of billions i think it's something like 25 billion pounds is unaccounted for by the treasury 25 billion i that, that I, I don't even know where you start with that because the Treasury has audits. Their internal audit found they couldn't account for $25 billion, And nobody's losing their job. You know, Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, can just sit there smug-faced, being challenged by someone like Ian Hislop. Oh, no, it wasn't that. That was another guy. Sorry. <laughs> but being challenged, 
on on the mainstream media or, or by anyone can just sit there smoke faced and just say, yeah, no, we're looking into it. Yeah, who knows? It's just twenty five billion stuff, which Carol Vorderman is doing around the PPE scandal stuff. Also, is just you know, it's day after day. There's there's a new revelation about some Tory donor who got their slice of the trough and just gorged on public money. In one of the companies that Carol Vorderman was talking about, that they had one director, £85 in the bank, for all intents and purposes, probably just a shelf company, and this company gets awarded a £50 million contract to supply PPE. It's a, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't understand that because... You know, I we um, develop healthcare software, and the tender process to award the software um, is pretty rigorous. And the output-based specifications that we have to answer about clinical and technical, um, it's it's quite intense. You know, and and it's just. You know how how did those contracts get awarded? Was it was it because we were under a phase of emergency and you know all, all the kind of usual um, checks and balances were bypassed because of this emergency that we were in? Yeah, I think that's exactly what happened. I think uh, well, I came up with this VIP lane <laughs> where their whole point was. We need to respond to the pandemic. We need to respond quickly because it takes too long to issue tenders and stuff and for the normal governance processes. So, so yeah, they used that. And I think if it had been, if the, the sh- shortcut governance process had been awarded, had seen contracts going to incumbent suppliers within the the current NHS framework, I don't think anyone would have decried that. I don't think there would have been a problem with that. But the thing is, it yeah. didn't, it I mean, you raise a good point there. Yeah. They were new, as you said, what, you know, what one company had one director and had just recently been formed. But yeah, no, I agree. It, you know, and PPE was delivered into the NHS. They, they had existing suppliers, so why not just award it to one of the existing suppliers? Yeah, that is the thing that just completely boggles my mind because I, um, you know, I work in the public sector, and I won't tell you where, um, <laughs> but I work in the public sector, and you know, we can't spend. Uh, I think the limit on a direct award contract is £100,000. And I think even that has governance associated with it. You still have to justify why you're doing a direct award. I think £10,000, you can just go ahead and award the business. So that, yeah, £100,000 sounds like a lot of money. And obviously, from a personal individual point of view, it is a lot of money. But from a, the, the type of contracts that we're looking at, I mean, my project is a £25 million project. I have to account for that on a pretty much daily basis on, on where that money is going and how it's being spent and making sure that I, I can account for and, and justify what we've spent the money on. And I, I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with accountability and I don't have a problem with going through all the, the, the hoops and jumps and stuff that we need to do to get the work done. 
I respect the process. I think it's troubling, uh, which is something which we can get onto. But I do think we have these things called framework agreements where we pre-qualify groups of suppliers. So when we send, so you've got to get onto that tier and then you can award a contract. Then when you go out to tender, you only have to tender with those few companies. So there's like huge competition to get onto into a framework. But once you're in the framework, you still have to compete with the other vendors in the framework for various different things. Yeah, having the frameworks does speed things up a little bit, but we still have the governance. We're still running tenders. We're still running competitive processes to make sure we're getting the best value for money. And I look at how the government behaves and I'm just like, what WTF, you know, that's, yeah. I can't, I can't see how it can happen. Even if you shortcut the process, those contracts should have been first offered to framework suppliers. I imagine you, you, Absolutely. your company must be a framework supplier. Yeah, we've got various frameworks that we've pre-qualified for. But again, you have to go through the whole tender process. Yeah, it just gives you access um, to, to you know, even tenders. though you you're in the framework, you still have to go through all the government. So penny wise and pound foolish completely. It, you know, we're we're putting tons and tons of governance on anything over a hundred thousand pounds, and yet the government can give out fifty million pound contracts to companies which haven't even been through the most basic vetting process. That just makes me really angry. And and I think the the other side of it is what we see happening with Fujitsu and with the post office. And again, being in the public sector, but not the post office. <laughs> You know, I'm a project manager and I see they, they've decided to go after the project manager um, who ran the project to deliver that software. And the only way I could deliver software to the organization I work for that didn't work or that had as many errors as the software apparently had, I, I don't even know how I would do that. I don't know how I would get software signed off without everybody in the chain agreeing um, and I just really hope that project managers got like I do a folder on a thumb drive with what I call my CYA my cover your ass folder for every time yeah. I'm told to do something counter just to what it. I've proposed yeah. we should do so that when you know if I say to him the risk is that this could happen and they say well we'll take the risk and say okay so you're telling me to do it anyway and you make sure you got the emails and you've got the receipts you know and so you've got to do that i've done that my whole career and it's bailed me out of trouble so many times where i can just rummage through find the email and send it out and say well look i, I did say this was this could happen it's happened now so it's not on me the project manager it's it's on the organization of the project itself so i really hope that this person has people that actually did the work and I've no doubt they worked extremely hard aren't the ones that end up carrying the can for this because someone somewhere signed off that software knowing that it didn't reconcile properly yeah no I feel I feel the same because again I'm also a project manager in like in in the past before where we've had projects not only have we had project board meetings with the customers 
but we've also had internal ones. If you go through your a large part of being a project manager is risk management, and you've got your risk management log, and if you've like said is a potential risk, and you then get told to go ahead and do it anyway, you've got to have that in in you know evidence that this is what had happened. Cover your ass. It's it's a brilliant way of of doing things, and I, I do it myself as well, just in case. But the point is that in any project, there's checks and balances. It's just the, the mind boggles that they can now like go, oh, well, it must be the person who delivered it. Yeah, exactly. And I um, talk about that governance. I mean, I've got my internal project team that I meet with on a, on a weekly basis. I've got a fortnightly working group, which is the broadest possible spectrum of stakeholders who have an interest in the project. So it really is a broad church. And and so I think the total invite list is like 52 people, but obviously only the people who be working with who are on the agenda need to attend it. But anyone from across the organization that we're delivering the software to can attend that working group and just see what's going on and how's it going. Um, and they're senior people, like from directors down. And then we've got two f- uh, four weekly senior forum type meetings, which one is the governance forum and the other one is with the client. You know, and one thing flows to the next, flows to the next. And then you've got these two four weekly forums, which kind of check each other's homework, if that makes sense. And that's not something novel or unique in delivering software projects. That's exactly how you do it. There isn't, I'm not some amazingly innovative project manager who's come up with uh, a, a way to structure my project in a way that one else has ever thought of. And, and anyway, I probably wouldn't be allowed to, <laughs> even if I had a better way of yeah. doing it. <laughs> I mean, it, again, we, we, we work under... Um, sort of flat framework. So for, for us in the UK, particularly project management, it's PRINCE2, which is projects in control environments and processes and flows. And it's it's quite a complex thing to be a project manager, particularly when you're talking, you know, mega, mega money. But yeah, there are processes that you have to follow. Yeah. So how on earth? I mean, I one of my biggest bugbears, and I know we've spoken about this before, is the extent to which public sector entities especially, but even large corporations have the same problem. Because so as a public sector entity, you have uh, a duty of care to take care of the the, the public purse. On the corporate side, they've got to take care of their shareholders. So you still got this oversight, you still got this thing. And as much as they tell you that every tender is as much about quality as it is about price, we know it's about price, right? It's like, <laughs> you know, you just, the hoops you have to jump through to justify going with a vendor who didn't come in with the lowest price are monumental. And, you know, these offshoring companies, they, my experience with them is that they respond to the tender at cost. So they come in cheaper than anyone else. Because they know how long it takes for a tender to get approved. And and that process can take 6 to 12, sometimes even 18 months to appoint a supplier. And they know by the time they get their feet under the desk and they're on site, 
and they do a review of the requirements, they know those, of course, they will have changed in the last, like, even if it's nine months, it will have changed. And that's when they, <laughs> you know, they bring out their expensive pens and start adding zeros to things. So they get in the door by undercutting everybody, knowing that it's just easier to go with the cheapest option. My biggest bugbear about this is, is this is money. This is, is, especially in my case, in the public sector, this is public money. This is taxpayers' money mm-hmm. going offshore. Yeah. Okay, it's not going into private bank accounts. Well, possibly. But the point is it's being spent elsewhere in the world, wherever that happens to be, and it's not being spent here, which means that the salaries and everything that that, that generates goes to the countries where these vendors are, are sourced. Whereas what I did with my project is I fought tooth and nail to deliver firstly the projects without these offshoring guys, and secondly, by by employing people into the organization and giving people who are living in this country, paying taxes in this country, the opportunity to benefit from the money that the public sector spends. So the fact that we're in a scenario where the general rule of thumb is to give award contracts to, to companies like Fujitsu is, is the default. And I just think that disconnect, that geographical disconnect, this whole thing with globalization, and it's a time zone issue as well. In my early days in IT, when we offshored stuff, the contract was you work the business hours of the country giving you the contract, not your own business hours. But that doesn't seem to happen anymore. And you know, people, vendors who think it's okay to say, yeah, but that... We can't, we can only meet with you like between these hours because of our working day. What do you, um, oh, we need to go to a break. When we come back from the break, I'll get Lee to respond to that because I'm talking too much again. The world's largest radio station for the trans community, Trans Radio UK. I'm back, beautiful and amazing human beings. So I kind of took over the stage um, in the last segment. So I just wanted to give. Uh, Lee a chance to get in on that whole thing around offshoring and stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, like, I've also had experience with with offshoring, and I've got a slightly different um, experience because the company that I work for, as what happens with a lot of companies, there's, like, mergers and acquisitions and, and things like that, and they were quite a big company, and they bought a smaller software company, and then, you know, all the staff followed, but what they did was they they had a software development team in India and all the software development was done in India. And in terms of cost, the reason why they kept it offshore was because the cost of, of development was significantly reduced. Now, India is about five, four, five hours ahead of UK time. And the advantage that I found was that if an issue had come up in the software in, you know, sort of like any time afternoon when the team in India were like leaving for the day. The next morning, by the time we got to work, that issue had been resolved because they were up, you know, far earlier than than we were. But the, the communication was quite stressful at times and quite frustrating because you'd write a specification and they would give you exactly what you've written in the specification. And 
instead of going, well, hang on a minute, that seems a bit silly because if we do it this way, you know, instead of having those discussions, they, they would just develop to spec. Even if there was a quicker and easier and better way of doing things, they would never, ever say, you know, perhaps we could have a look at this or that or, you know, something like that. So it was very frustrating. And, yeah, when I got back to, when I changed jobs and, and worked with, you know, UK developers to have them in the same room as you, that communication is so much easier. Yeah, where you can actually just talk about ideas and just say, look, this is what we think she needs to do. How do you think we should yeah. do it? That value add. And and it's exactly those kind of conversations that help you grow as an IT professional is trying to find those solutions to, to difficult problems. And I think it, it is this whole penny-wise, pound-foolish thing because, yes, it does cost less on the surface, but it's, as I said, the, they make it back. The, I always used to, when I was in a sort of pre-sales role, I would always look at the scale of the problem that needed to be fixed because I was often put on the spot to say, well, how much do you think it's going to cost? No, go on. You know, we're not going to like, um, we're not going to like oh, put it on you. It. And they do. They always do. They say, oh, but you said. <clears throat> so I would always look at it and just say, okay, I think it's, you know, X pounds based on my understanding of the scale of the problem and using my own experience and saying, well, you know, in the past, this is how long it's taken me to resolve problems like this. And this is how much it cost. And nine times out of 10, once you went away and then did that like detailed breakdown of all the costs and everything, you'd come up to pretty much the same number. What mm -hmm. companies end up paying in the end, even though they've paid less for specific roles in the project, they actually end up paying in other things later because somebody at £500 a day can maybe do in four hours what someone at £400 a day can do in eight. So the rate cards might be cheaper, but the actual quality of the output and, as you say, just the ability to have someone there that you can talk to and spitball ideas about how to solve a particular problem. And I think this is, for me anyway, that's my assessment just closing out the Fujitsu thing because, for me, that's where things like this are bound to go wrong because there, there isn't that same degree of ownership that you get. It's just a contract. And before long, you're spending more time debating the meanings of specific clauses in the project, in the contract, than actually delivering the functionality of the project. So, and I just, yeah, I, I get the sense that corners were cut somewhere and they just needed to get the software out in order to achieve a milestone payment. Um, they must have shortcut the user acceptance testing and either didn't find these problems or glossed over them. <laughs> But yeah, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. But that for me, as an IT professional, that's where I can see how that actually went wrong. What they then went on to do when there was clearly a problem. I mean, you can't have a system where you've got so many customers supposedly defrauding you and shortchanging yeah, you. Yeah, it doesn't make sense at all. And then to go to the extent of like prosecuting them for theft and fraud. Yeah. You know something's got to be wrong somewhere, but it was just this idea that, oh, these sub-postmasters, you know, they're, they're obviously just skimming or whatever. 
yeah it really it's it's really very disappointing especially as an IT professional to have an IT project be the cause of so much pain and hardship to 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 innocent people so i hope they do better next time <laughs> and sort these people out yeah so moving on from fujitsu there was this other thing that came up earlier this week and it was this article and this is just you know another one that makes my blood boil which um um just just getting that up right so this is the headline billionaires like jeff bezos Elon Musk and Larry Ellison are $1.6 trillion richer since the pandemic. So not from before the pandemic, since the pandemic. What do you think that's all about? The fallout of the pandemic was that it was a huge transfer of wealth and the poor got poorer and the rich got even richer. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely horrendous. You know, still, like you've mentioned earlier in the show about the profit and the way that they structure things so that they have tax-efficient systems in in place. You know, I think the these people are, are pretty much, you know, tax-efficient in the way that they do things. Um, and then they get upset when, you know, a government calls them out and says, you're not paying enough taxes. And it's like, well, you know. There's always seems to be loopholes for for these people. It's like where does where does it end? Where does it end? In an unrelated article last week, I was reading. Um, there's a big toe to toe going on between Tesla's assembly plant employees and Tesla in Sweden. And what's coming out of that is that Tesla apparently have and Elon Musk specifically have worked extremely hard to keep the un to to keep their staff ununionized, whereas Sweden has very powerful unions. And that sounds a lot like Amazon <laughs> and the way they duck and dive and dodge and try to come up with ways to to make sure they're not paying their staff. And when it comes back to just the individual, you think to yourself, how much is enough? When have you when have you got enough? And I saw a meme the other day which was Maybe we should be looking at companies that have a corporate conscience rather than ones whose CEOs want to go into space. <laughs> you know, because, yeah, I just, I just don't know how they can get to the point. I mean, someone like Jeff Bezos, who is always beating up on his workers, is going hell for leather to automate his factories uh, or his picking his warehouses and stuff just so he can get richer and richer and richer and he could be on one of his blue origin cock rockets going on a jaunt with some of his billionaire mates and the same thing could happen to him that happened to to those folks that went on that submarine and he could be wiped out tomorrow and he's gone finished done and yeah he's got family and stuff but again it's like how much is enough how much is enough I mean, I would like to have more cash <laughs> in the bank than I need. But at a certain point, it's like if this was a kid at a at a party and they were hogging all the food, like somebody would have something to say about that, you know? <laughs> you would think, hey. But yeah, I agree. What is enough? Because 
more you have, the more you seem to want. Not necessarily need, but want. Now, if I had a good few million in the bank, probably the first thing that I would do was stop working, you know, so that I could enjoy that money. I wouldn't think to myself, oh, I must carry on working so that I can turn these couple of million into hundreds of millions or billions because, you know, I'd have enough. And the first thing I'll do is stop working and go, yay, you know. Yeah, you often hear that said about like child act- actors and actresses who like the, the, the kids who were in Harry Potter. And I hate to give that franchise a call out at all. But I was chatting to someone the other day about it and said, you know, you don't really see a lot of these people like they did Harry Potter and now you don't sort of see them anymore. And they're like, well, yeah, they probably don't have to work. (laughs) I mean, the ones who are passionate about it, like who is the Harry Potter actor? I can never remember his name. You also stumped. Daniel Radcliffe. Daniel Radcliffe. I mean, he obviously is passionate about acting. Um, so, so he's, he's done quite a bit, but you know, I guess if, if you were a child star and you've done that acting, you know, over 12 years with each of those movies, you'd probably be like, Hey, well, I'm done with acting now. Let me see what else I can do. And I've got enough coming in and royalties to, to not have to worry about that. So let me go and do something else. And people are always criticizing actors and stuff and saying, don't get political. Don't, you know, and I'm like. They have the ability to not have to worry necessarily about their income. And yet, and, and, and so they use that bandwidth that they have where they don't have to be going into work every day to do good and to call people out. And I think that's, that's exactly what rich people should be doing is saying, okay, I've got enough now. I mean, can you imagine if everyone in Amazon or Tesla benefited from those profits in the same way that the shareholders do. It's just, um, you know, the, the, inef- the inequality. And that's what um, Oxfam were calling out, as they just said, you know, it's, it's inequality like has never been seen before. So nasty billionaires, mega trillionaires, basically. Um, <laughs> all right, let's go to a final break. And when we come back, a very disturbing thing I read this week. See you after the, after the break. Did you know we've got an absolutely wonderful merch store? You can buy merch from the show. You can buy this mug, which supports my rugby team, the Sussex Dragons. This is one of my favorites. This is best part of waking up, turf tears in my cup. We also have t-shirts, which support my rugby team and t-shirts which express our dissatisfaction with England rugby for the way they've treated trans people. And for you bikers out there, we've got our Sisters on Steel Motorcycle Club. Scan this or follow the links on tigergirl.substack.com. Now back to the show. Back, beautiful and amazing human beings. So I mentioned before the break about something I had read this week, and this really upset me especially given what we were talking about last week about the Sussex Dragons and stuff. So according to the headline, which is in the Times, of course, in the Sunday Times, the headline is Stop Funding Grassroots Sports That Allow Transgender Women. Campaigning group says it is mounting, says it has mounting evidence 
of adverse effects on women and girls at social level competing with and against transgender people. I suppose at least they called them transgender people and not what they normally call us, which is... And this is, of course, Sharon Davies, who's very much... She seems to have had a lot of work done, but that's neither here nor there. She says that... So the campaign group has called for the government to make the public funding of sport dependent on sports bodies providing a protected female character category in which trans women cannot compete at any level. And this, of course, is with fair play for women as well. The thing that I found insidious, that's nothing new. That This has been going on for a while now. But the thing that I found insidious is a bit here where they talk about... Let me see, where did I find it? Here. So according to this research that they've done, it says that cis women and girls experience unfair competition and demoralization, lose out on records and rankings, and are put into an environment where they face a loss of privacy and dignity without consent. And that's the insidious little thing so I mentioned last week that we've got some research that's coming down the track, which hopefully uh, it's every week should be the next week and it doesn't come out. But this research is going to demonstrate that trans women do not have substantial advantage, technical advantage over cisgendered women on the sports field. And I think they know this is coming or they sense that they can't make this physiological argument for much longer. So they're pivoting now to the, we've got to keep our children safe. It's for the children. And taken to its natural extent, they talk here about wanting to make schools and clubs and everything, female-only space. So changing rooms and things like that will be female-only spaces. Born female, signed female at birth. And that's, it's the thin end of the wedge, man. That's exactly, so that's where they're going with this now, is it's no longer about the fact that, yeah, I'm no more dangerous on a playing field. They're going now to the core of what they were after all along, which is to keep trans women out of female-only spaces. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think you've, I think you've got a case there. Because often what happens is a lot of noise is made about something that's like a surface level issue and it hides the deep roots of the issue. Like, for example, exclusion from female-only spaces. And yeah, I think that's exactly what's being done here. And then using the children as a weapon, we can't have our children experiencing this. Yeah, because it's an emotive issue, yeah, isn't it? It's just, yeah, exactly. And people are going to latch onto that. And it's all about the fear mongering that we've spoken about at length on the show. And people are going to look at that now and mm-hmm. go, oh my goodness, we can't have that happening to our children. Yeah, that's it, exactly. And it's not demonstrated that trans teens are any more proficient necessarily than other, than cisgendered teens. I do think there is. This is part of the sort of circuitous problem that we have in this country because 
under the age of 18, or I think it's 16, you can't access gender-affirming health care. So you will, every teen will have gone through male puberty because they're not allowed to provide gender-affirming health care. That immediately just takes them all out. And so if you are a teen, if you're at school and you want to play sport, who do you play with? And this is where... I've been hesitant to do this, but I'm going to. I'm going to call out Lucy and Avril. I'm going to say to them, we've got to do something. I'm doing what I can on the rugby front, which is ultimately broader than rugby, because if we can demonstrate that there is a way to provide sports to young trans people, we've got to do that. And whether it's rugby or cricket or whatever the sport is, we have to find a way to provide that opportunity. Now, I think I know for a lot of trans girls, young trans girls, so that's why I'm using girls, not in a pejorative sense, I'm saying because, say, pre-18, they don't bother to think about possibly playing a sport. And I've made the point that someone like Brianna, I don't know, I don't want to put on her I don't want to project onto her the way I felt about things, but there must be kids like her who could have benefited from being part of a group and part of a community. And I just see in writing my own story and going back over my history, the so many of the bad decisions I took and so many of the people I ended up hurting as a consequence of that were rooted in the lack of access to information. And I would have made, I would like, I, I'm certain at least two of them, I would have made a fundamentally different decision had I had, if I knew then what I know now. And the way that they are going, they started at the elite sports and everybody's canary in the coal mine. People were like, they're not going to stop there. And then rugby brought it yep. down to social sports. And now we're going after every single sport, regardless of whether it's a physiological issue. You know, actually what it's about is it's about the fact that trans females are not entitled to the same access and protection as females, as cisgendered females. and despite the fact that trans women are order of magnitude more likely to be abused, the victims of sexual and physical violence. So actually, as a subset of the female category, that is the category that's most at risk. And stuff like this is just dog whistles to cause the same level of, of hatred. Thoughts? <laughs> Your soapbox stuff, yeah. Yeah. And again, I think Sharon Davies has in the past come out and said there is only one truth, and that truth is that human beings cannot change their biological sex, right? So that's her kind of like argument. And technically, there is some truth in the matter. You you cannot change your, your DNA to, to that regard. But at the same time, she's not willing to, to sit down and have a discussion 
with a, a transgender woman. She's just going, you know, th this is my narrow view. You cannot change your biological sex, end of. Without, as we've encouraged on this show, having a debate, sitting down, getting to know somebody like that, getting to walk a mile in their shoes, getting to understand their perspective. And if we could break down some of those kind of barriers, maybe people, one hopes, would have a, a different perspective on this. And you wouldn't be going with, you cannot change your biological sex. That's not the, the issue that we're trying to debate here. We, we're trying to debate the fact that the whole gender dysphoria thing and the fact that you feel that you were born should have been born a girl and by all intents and purposes that's the way you want to live your life and what's wrong with it what is wrong with it yeah the usual counter argument is i said what they said about gay people was yeah what they do in their own home doesn't affect anyone where they the problem with this particular narrative is we exist outside of our own home <laughs> we need to go to the loo we need to exist in society so it goes back to probably one of the earliest conversations that we had and we're still trying to get Carly back on but the point is it was never about sport it was never about sport it's literally like that old adage where you could say first they came for the elite sportswoman and I said nothing then they came for the social sportswoman and I said nothing then they came for school children and I said nothing. Now they're coming for our very right to exist. And there's nobody that will speak for us. I will. And I will continue to do so. And I will continue to fight. But it's exhausting. And I need help. I need people to come on board. I've got a great group of people around me, yourself included. But it's all at an interpersonal level. It's not institutional. It's not at a level where we can actually get the kind of funding that these people have. This is the thing. They, we know who's funding them. We know it's a right-wing agenda. And we just, I feel very powerless today. And my appeal to everyone is just, especially to Avril and Lucy, you've done a great piece of work with the truck football team. Let's go further. Let's do more because we need to, and I'm prepared to leave it there. And Lee, <laughs> any final thoughts? Yeah, uh, again, it's just reiterating, this This is a, a very small platform that, that we have here. And while we're grateful for it, we, we need a much bigger presence. We, we need to amplify our voice. And even if it's like you disagree with the stuff that we talk about, particularly when it comes to transgender, then the challenges come on the show and have a conversation with us. Let's start with that, just having a, a conversation, because we do need to amplify our voice. We do need to. We need a bigger platform. We need to carry on like growing this movement before it is squashed out. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it more. Thanks for that, Lee. I think you really encapsulated that so well anyway stick around after the break for mg's unorthodox jukebox hopefully she'll have some good music to lift your souls after that very difficult conversation 
And yeah, with that, it's a goodbye from me. And it's a goodbye from Lee. See you next time. Take care. Bye. Hey, this is Pink. Trans Radio UK.